Hello and welcome to Irreverent Testimony, brought to you by Netroots Radio, the political podcast by and for millennial and Gen Xer types from a left-wing perspective. It is Saturday, January 13th, 2018. I'm Travis. I'm Rachel. And we have a very special guest today, Mr. Austin Fenninger, a football player, senior, just finished his senior year at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, Austin. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're really excited to have Austin on. Austin transferred to Drake after three years at the University of Miami, and that's <laughs> that perked up our interest because we're huge Canes fans, and we're going to get into all that. But we wanted to talk to Austin about some kind of serious stuff in terms of uh, compensation or lack thereof for college football players and how a lot of guys are living below the poverty line. Um, most of them, yeah, so, I think it might be fair to say. So Rachel's going to jump right in and I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> so um, as you guys know, I'm not like super into sports ball. But um, Travis made me watch a documentary a couple years ago called... The U. The U. By Billy Corbin's The U. Yeah. yeah. And it was all about how the Miami Hurricanes started their football team. And, and it's an incredible documentary, and it made me love them. And then I started watching football and then basketball. And I don't much care about any of that except for specifically the Miami Hurricanes. Um, but what it did for Travis and I was sort of create this conversation around this idea that these young men are playing sports and making really millions and maybe billions of dollars for Well, let, let's back up a somebody. little, right? Because, Austin, you're from Indiana, right? Right. And so your connection with the Hurricanes was just watching those great teams of the early 2000s and saying, this, these guys look amazing. I'd love to be a part of that. Exactly. And so when I first started paying attention to football, um, I was about seven years old, and that was 2001 when they won the national championship. Mm-hmm. A lot of people um, viewed them as the best single team of all time. Yeah, they were. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, it was hard not to fall in love with them. And I kind of followed them ever since. My room uh, here at home is painted green and orange. Um, so it was always like a dream of mine um, that I ended up making hap- making it happen. Um, so yeah, they have a you know a wide scope that they reach to. It's a you know, it's not a real big school, but it's a global brand. And, um, you know, there's fans all over the world. Um, just mm-hmm. the logo is so recognizable. Yeah, it, it is. And uh, I grew up as a kid in Miami. My dad used to take me to the Orange Bowl in the heyday, like the 80s and the early 90s. And, uh, you know, awesome. I saw the national championships there and saw the Hale Flutie pass and, you know, good times and bad and, I saw the unfortunate last game in the Orange Bowl against Virginia. So, I mean, I've I've kind of seen it all, and and I also played high school football in Florida at a you know, a robust uh, five five hundred forty pounds. So wow. your story and guys like you, and coincidentally Chris likes on the basketball team. You know, for some reason uh, you guys just stick out to me, so, <laughs> being my role models and living the dream. And uh, yeah, I mean, before we get too football heavy, you mentioned it a little bit in your in the article they did on you in the Des Moines Register. But you know, obviously, it must have been a dream come true getting that that chance to be a, a walk on at the at the U, and just jumping in there. Uh, I guess it was it was 2014, right? And uh, against some guys like future NFL dudes like 
uh, and and going against like Artie Burns and Jamal Carter. <laughs> I was like, what, what what was that like all of a sudden? Oh man, well, like the first week um, when we started practice, I called my parents. I I said, you know, I'm not really sure if this is the right thing for me. Right. Um, you know, I was always a good athlete growing up, but then when you get there, that's the the best of the best. Mm-hmm. I'm five seven on a good day, hundred. Now I'm like 170 pounds, but I was a little lighter then. And uh, those guys are all tall, fast, strong, uh, physical. So, you know, I was getting beat up every day. It was pretty tough, but it really, uh, you know, made me focus on my technique. And, you know, I wasn't going to improve as much as an athlete um, at that age, but I could improve as a football player. And that's what I did. And, you know, as each year went by, I started, you know, making more and more plays and getting recognized and, uh, you know, I ended up playing some my last year there, and I lettered. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was named Scout Player of the Year. Yeah, uh, saw you on so, some special teams, I remember. Yeah, so it, you know, hard work definitely paid off, and I'm glad I stuck with it. Um, so, yeah, then I, I graduated uh, with a BA in political science and minored in business management. Awesome. I was a Dean's List member there, um, helped keep the team GPA up a little bit. <laughs> um, so then I you know, had a fifth year. I decided to transfer to Drake university, um, just to play my last year. And I was looking for a one year, um, master's degree that was going to be useful for me. And they had a, uh, one year law degree. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. So I'm finishing that up in May. Um, and I'm planning on hopefully moving back to Miami and being a sports agent, uh, sometime coming this summer after I take the exam. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a good place to do it, man. It's yeah, just I'm cool. excited about it. It's just crawling with, with athletes. You know, when they're done with college, they could play on a lot of different levels or right. you know, at least get some kind of work or get on practice squads or whatnot. So that's really great, man. That's an amazing story. And I'm going to shut up with the fanboy stuff and let Rachel <laughs> actually ask some questions she wants to ask, at least for a minute. So you were a full-ride uh, collegiate athlete or – no. No, I was uh, I walked on at Miami. Okay. Um, so yeah, I wasn't given a scholarship. Okay. So what I want to talk about is, it seems gravely unfair and some sort of, I don't know, indentured servitude or something that college football and basketball players are making are are performing or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um this sport that is making so much money uh, for some people and they are paid nothing. Um, And for those full ride college athletes, um, the NCAA has decided that the payment is the full ride, right? Right. And I was doing some research about this because when I started to get into this whole thing, I it just always seemed very unfair to me. Um, and I know that there's a lot of discussion and some people think that they shouldn't be paid and some people think they should. And I, I sort of understand the arguments around it, but how do you feel about your experience as a collegiate athlete? Um, and also about compensation and just what are your sort of initial thoughts? Um, first of all, I, you know, wanted to play, uh, sports in college since I was little. So I, I'm so glad that I did it. It taught me so much and I gained so many relationships 
from it. So I wouldn't change a thing about that. Um, and same with probably most of these guys that, you know, they play the sport because they love it. That's what they like to do growing up. Um, for me personally, um, you know, I didn't need to be compensated just because our, uh, you know, we're better off than most. Um, so, you know, I was able to play without a scholarship and, uh, my family has always fully supported me. You know, a lot of these guys come from nothing though. Um, and you know, playing a collegiate sports, their only way to get to college for in many instances, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of them, like you mentioned earlier, uh, are below the poverty level or just near it. Um, some of my teammates had parents that were incarcerated and, um, you know, they get a small like cost of living stipend, uh, every month, I think during the school year, um, I'm not sure exactly how much it is. I think it's around like a thousand or so, but a lot of guys are sending that back home to their mom or their siblings just to help support them. Wow. Um, so it, a lot of guys are in tough situations. Um, like you said, there's so much money that's flowing through, especially with the new newer TV contracts. Um, I was just looking up some stats earlier and I saw Texas A&M's bringing in nearly $200 million in athletic revenue a year. Right. Um, so the money is there, definitely. Coaches in, I think it's over like 40 states are the highest paid state employees. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, for in men's basketball and football. Um, so there's, you know, I haven't really heard of like the perfect way to how you would distribute it because there are other sports. That's what a big argument is, you know, men's football and basketball are the two money winners, but you know, with the title nine ramifications, you have all the other uh, non-revenue generating sports. So then the argument comes, you know, how do you, do you compensate those athletes um, or what happens to them? Are they just left uh, up in the air? Um, So that's kind of one thing I think that really be addressed if you're, if they're going to move forward with uh, possibly compensating athletes more. Yeah. And the argument that I've heard is sort of that they don't want to give any particular university the edge, right? Right, um, exactly. And so it's how do you, how does the uh, mid-major school compete with the Alabama or the Ohio State who has an enormous budget um, when you might be a smaller private school, for instance, and you, you're not getting as much uh, revenue coming through? Right, right. So I pulled um, a journal article from, um, it was a joint effort from the National College Players Association. I'm going to butcher this person's name and I apologize. Uh, Ramoji Huma, Mm -hmm. uh, president of the National College Players Association. And Ellen Storowski, professor of sports management at Drexel University um, with Uh, additional contributions by Rob Henry from Purdue, Jeff Locke from UCLA, Denzel McCoy from Georgia Tech, Lily Mlandova, grad students from Ithaca, uh, Anthony Mosley from Kentucky football, and Ricardo Young from Virginia Tech football. And what they did is they did a study about the price of poverty in big-time college sport, is what it's called. And they did um, a study about what the poverty level is um, among collegiate athletes who are given a full-ride scholarship. And 
um, what a fair market rate might be and a lot of other things. I'm just going to read a couple of the major findings that they had and then I want to talk about it a little bit. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so they looked at the 2009-2010 academic year. Um, again, these are collegiate athletes that are on a full ride scholarship. Um, the average annual scholarship shortfall or out-of-pocket expenses for the football series full scholarship athletes was $3,222. The compensation for FBS athletes who are on full scholarship that they receive for living expenses, room and board and other things, situates the vast majority at or below the poverty level, 86% of them. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, the average FBS full scholarship athlete earns less than the federal poverty line by $1,874 on campus and $1,794 off campus. If allowed to access the fair market like the professionals, the average FBS football and basketball player would be worth approximately $121,048 and $265,027 respectively, not counting individual commercial endorsement deals. And then they talk about uh, football players with the top 10 and University of Texas and some of those things. Um, it appears that basketball players would make more than football players. Um, at, the, at the big, big at schools. At the big, yeah. big schools. Like Duke, yeah. Um, but the fact that their compensation leaves most of, 85% of them, um, below the federal poverty level is jarring, considering mm -hmm. the amount of money that is being brought in. It's It's not that this is... I think what upsets me is that this is not like it's a not-for-profit thing. Yeah. This money that's coming in isn't like going back into the colleges to provide scholarships or going to some charitable thing. It's going into the pockets of people who are profiting off of the labor and physical work of these young men. And, and sometimes risking their health. That's right. Their yeah. health, their brains. Um, and it, it, I, I want to add one thing that how a lot of the people who are more stubborn on the issue or saying that athletes are greedy or compensated enough. I don't know anyone who's like a collegiate athlete who's trying to get rich, um, or get it, you know, an enormous amount of money from this. It's just more of a, be able to be comfortable on your own pay, be able to pay all your expenses off that you might be incurring or take yep. care of your family a little bit. Um, you know, maybe just a few thousand, uh, a month at the most um no one's asking for tens of thousands of dollars um so that's one thing that's really misconstrued in all of this yeah i'm really glad you brought that up austin and i got a couple of things to throw in here because very recently i think it was just in the past week um had two high profile underclassmen declare for the nfl draft right. uh, of course i had hoped that they would stay for selfish reasons <laughs> but they decided to go and i totally understand um, they're going to get drafted, you know, how high or whether they could have got drafted higher is a source of debate, but they'll be pros next year. Um, and I made the mistake of going to the message board to gauge some of the reaction. And some of the reaction is, is really just amazing to me that these kids owe the university and they just are using the university and how dare they. And it's, right. yeah, it's, that's why I just kind of avoid trying to interact with other fans who post on these forums generally, but you know, it's just forehead smacking. And then you also realize that these kids have a chance to go pro now 
and the physical toll it takes on your body, they only may get three or four years out of that. So, yeah, they may make a couple million dollars, and that couple million dollars may have to last a lifetime. So, Why shouldn't they make a couple million dollars? They absolutely Why should. Why shouldn't they make tons of money? Yeah. There's tons of money to be made. Yes. This is their physical labor. This is their bodies they're putting on the line for the their entertainment brains. of other people. Yeah, it's one thing if you're talking about your... <laughs> Having a bad hip the rest of your life, which is bad enough, or a bad back, or right. But you know, you're talking about now. It's pretty much undisputed knowledge, despite the NFL's attempt to whitewash it, that you're putting your brain on the line playing right. the sport. That's right. So, yeah, you're trying to cash in while you can, which is completely understandable. Um, it's great if you have a degree, but you don't know what your earning potential is in this economy, no matter what your degree is. As we all know. As we all know. Uh, you have a chance to cash in now and make some good money, at least for a few years. And you why? Know, here's my question: Why mm-hmm. is there any resentment about that? Well, but I see, oh, go, go ahead, Austin. No, okay. Your um, viewpoint. Obviously, you know you have the very hardcore fans who just, you know, they want all their players to return because they want. You know, it does. The team's not going to be as good in that position, right. and you know that's obvious. And I understand, you know wanting your team to compete at the highest level each year and wanting your guys to return. Um, some fans, like you said, you know, I believe that those guys could have been drafted higher if they stayed a year and then maybe. Hello, Austin. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, sorry. You, you went quiet for a, for a minute. Okay. I'll, uh, I was saying, um, Oh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, that those guys could have potentially got drafted higher and made more money uh, to start off with. Um, the school, you can get an insurance policy against your uh, against injury if you were to get hurt if you come back came back your senior year. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, there is the the injury potential. The average NFL career is only about three years. Um, so that is the big risk. Yeah, but that insurance so, policy doesn't cover if you were projected to be a, a second-round pick or a first-round pick and you blow out your knee and then you're a seventh-round picker undrafted. That, that doesn't begin to match probably right. what you lose. Yeah, exactly. It's a much, much smaller amount. Um, the good thing that my at least Miami, I don't know if other schools do this, but you can return. If So if you leave early, you can come back and get your degree for free. That's right, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, at least that they're you know they're trying to help the athletes um, after they're done, and they you know realize that it is a tough decision for them and, to make. And just from a football perspective, that that puts Miami in this weird kind of bind. Is that one of the big selling points for recruits? Is hey, it's NFLU. You know, right. come to the look at all the players we pump into the NFL, and it's true. Miami pumps more guys into the NFL than anybody, and. Um, that means some guys are going to leave early more than yeah. others. I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword, so you kind of have to just take that. Yeah, and just but, be on top of recruiting so you can replace guys. Exactly, and that's exactly. What you got to be aware of. Yeah. But this whole this – whole, I'm sorry. It seems – I know I'm not a huge sports fan, so forgive me, but it seems a little ridiculous that um, we're valuing – the performance of a team over the lives and futures of individuals. I mean, these young men have to do what they have to do, and they should. And that, sorry if the team suffers, but fuck off. That's I don't your care. That, that's your typical football fan, and that's why fan is short for fanatic. They're they're not thinking about it rationally. They're not thinking about it from a point of view of understanding the humans. 
the actual human yeah. beings and their lives no. and what they have to go through and, and what is, they are enduring. Right. What and everyone has, are. you know, each each case is completely different from the other. So it's hard to just uh, you can't lump everyone together because you don't know the guy's you know family background or their financial situations. Of course, um, and sometimes to feed and so yeah. it's. And guys try to bring that up, and it becomes very obvious, especially when you listen to talk radio or you read the message boards. The people that generally come in and, and defend the players who decide to leave, even if it was Joe Yearby, who him leaving early was a huge head scratcher, but you, right. you don't know his situation. You don't know what was going on in his life or with his family and all the, the decisions that, that – all the things in his life that fed into that decision – and you, we couldn't possibly know. We're not in his shoes, and you know, um, and, and you kind of see, you, you get a sense of where these people come from in terms of their background and what they relate to, uh, where they're coming from, and saying, "Well, he just should have stayed," or "How dare this guy leave early?" or "Boy, that was a stupid decision." You know, ultimately, it's these kids' futures and and their lives, and you know, um, and what I'm still trying to get to is. Why there is a resentment among some fans and some people about the amount of money that these men make, right? There seems to be this uh, this thread of well, that's too much, or they're greedy, or there's some there's some sense that that they don't deserve to make the amount of money that they make, right? And to your point, you know, an average NFL career lasts for three years. Well, that that's that's but, that kind of gets into some politics, right? Especially yeah. with the latest whole flap over how dare these guys kneel during the national anthem? They're right. they're paid so much money, right? Yeah. So I want to talk about that because sure, let's jump right into it. I I think that there's first of all, I think there's a racial component to it. Absolutely. Um, the fact that the majority of professional athletes are men of color in. Certain sports, certainly football and, football and basketball. positions, yeah. Um, uh, and this idea that they're asking for too much or they're making too much or they're too greedy. Um, yeah. And certainly they can't have opinions or, you know. Um, Meanwhile, the owners and the GMs and the coaches right. are almost are all white. All white. Yeah. And I'm sorry. Not putting their brains on the line. Are they getting a concussion? Are <laughs> no. they getting their knee blown out? Are they getting smashed into day in and day out every day for the entertainment of a bunch of other people? No. I don't I think that there's something to be said about that. Like mm-hmm. there there is some kind of of underlying racism in the way that we talk about professional athletes and how much they're paid and when they kneel and that kind of stuff. Or even college athletes. Are saying, they're, well, they're insane. getting they're getting a free well, ride. Well, they're getting a free education, so yeah. why isn't that enough? Well, because it's not. Why do they get nothing and it's their actual physical bodies that are on the line? And, and just go, to go to a point, um, and Austin, when I was in Miami – in 2001, even though I didn't graduate from UM, I actually went to FIU, but I, I had friends and I actually – my girlfriend went to UM and was on the rowing team and I spent more time on the UM campus than, oh, yeah. than my own campus and I knew a lot of these guys. And a lot of the guys on that 2001 team, like they didn't, they didn't have jack shit. Like they needed people to like sometimes buy them dinner and buy them right. meals, mm-hmm. which technically is against yeah. NCAA rules. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just like, hey, I'm hungry, man. Can you buy me some dinner? And it's like, it's that bad. And and 
I think at the time the team was so good and everything, people kind of just turned the other cheek and, uh, well, that sucks. And the older I get, the harder it gets for me to do that. I have this ambivalent relationship with college sports. I mean, I'm never going to stop watching college sports, but like I kind of understand the seedy underbelly of it more and more. And I kind of get this queasy feeling when I think about it too much. Yeah. And that's getting harder to reconcile. And at the very least, I recognize it and we're talking about it. But anyway, Austin, I think you had some thoughts before, you know. Yeah. So one thing, you know, some of the fans that get mad um, that for players leaving early, but don't support higher compensation. If they had a little more of a compensation, they'd be more likely to stay in school and not, you know, have that panic or need that they need to maybe go out earlier than they should. Mm-hmm. Um because you know they still they're still making some money um, and can get by another year. Right, they can um, survive a year. They can. Work right, out. exactly. Yeah. Um, another thing. So say there's a music student on a music scholarship. If they make compose a song for, or not, they can make money off of that. Mm-hmm. But an athlete can't make money off their likeness or image. Um, but the school can. But the school can. Right, the school does. Yeah, the school makes. Um, millions, but an athlete doesn't. You see fans wearing the numbers of guys' jerseys in the stands, yep. um, but a player doesn't see a dime of that. Which is you insane. Know, that in no other place in this country is that true, right? right? In no other industry, in no other situation is that true. That your own likeness, your own number, and your own your your yeah, your autograph yeah, yeah. you you that is you you that's yours i mean the nca has made it now so you can't put the names on the jersey but it doesn't matter if it's your the number everybody right. knows where everybody knows yeah yeah because they really have been skating on the line of the law for a long time and get it, and they keep getting clipped and clipped and clipped back but they really really ride that line the ncaa to protect their profits and mm-hmm. not um protect the interest of the athletes and it's i think it's problematic for sure right and, and when it comes to miami you know miami is at a competitive disadvantage with some of these other schools because let's be honest some of these big schools to secure the big name players and to keep them from leaving to the nfl early they will hand them some money under the table mm-hmm. and you know that sort of thing used to bother me and it does kind of irk me that it does put my, Miami at a competitive disadvantage sometimes, but you know, let these kids have some money under the table. I get Jesus, it. Jesus, why does it have to be under the NCAA? Needs well, that, to be completely yeah. rethought. Right, really, it does. I mean, yeah. well, well, that's that's the hypocrisy of it. But the same good old boy network of the school presidents and administrators who want to keep these rules enforced also look the other way when they know that cash is being handled under the table at like the big SEC schools, especially. Right. Yeah, so right. they want to keep that system of, you know, let's keep it hush hush. You know, you can't be just blatant with it like you know SMU was in the eighties, where the gov- right. where the governor himself was writing off car loans. But right. you know, like you know, well, we know these players are getting money under the table. Let's just keep it that way. But we can't officially pay them because that'll just blow up the whole system. Yeah, good, blow up the whole system. Right, and then of course a scandal comes around like Nevin Shapiro, where oh, guys were getting free dinners and rides on boats. That's you know that's scandalous. Yeah, we have to right, yeah, Miami almost gets the whole book thrown at them for right. you know, and, and you relatively were, minor things. And you were there for the tail end of that, I think, right, Austin? Yeah. Yeah, we were still on sanctions while I was there. Um, and my last year is when we just got off them. Uh, and it affected the program 
for quite a long time. Um, mm-hmm. Really, Al Golden's whole tenure that has had to deal with one the massive negative publicity, uh, massive loss of scholarships, a two-year bull ban, and that just set the program back so far. Um, you know, there's a lot of talent still coming through, but when you don't have anywhere near the amount of depth that of the teams that you're competing with, it's hard to you know stay competitive. Yeah, um, that definitely and, set us back, and it kind of opened my eyes, and I and I hope that it maybe opened some other people's eyes to like we're we're really gonna punish these kids in this university because a bunch yeah, of them, things that happened over ten years, you know. But, but the, like, the scope so, of what right. happened, like they got some free dinners, they they right. they hung out at a guy's house, like like literally, that's what my yeah, got in this huge show. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, they got some lap dances too, so that that's that oh well, jeez, that's just the worst thing that's ever happened, and no college student ever did that. <laughs> Fuck. No, I I don't know. I just it frustrates me, and I I think the whole system should be blown up. I think it should be entirely rethought. You know, uh, yeah. I know that there's so much money. Anytime there's that much money, um, it's really hard to make change. Mm-hmm. Because there's such a vested interest, and those interests are not going to budge. No, and the and the power doesn't lie with the players. And that's the problem. The power the power lies with the um, the NCAA regents and the boards right. and the coaches right. and the networks. Right. And everybody's making money except the people who are putting their bodies on the line. The only way to change that is if people just stop going to games and tune out, and that's not happening. Even I'm not doing that. So, in a, another point on that, how you said everyone's making money except the players whose bodies on the line. Alabama's coaches received a 1.27 million dollar collective bonus after they won the national championship. The coaches, right? So that's spread out between a, like I think nine nine coaches. Um, so wow. you know the smallest amount that one coach got was I believe forty five or fifty thousand, which is still more than you know the average American makes in a whole year. Um, with the highest one getting paid about a quarter million, um, one of their assistants. So that's wow. yeah, just a one game bonus that the players don't see a penny of. Not a penny. And sure, the coaches should get credit for that. <laughs> I agree. But <laughs> okay, you already paid a salary. Right. How about the players who won the goddamn game? It just, I think they got iPods. It's just, it's maddening. <laughs> it's maddening. The other thing I wanted to talk about was food. Because yeah. I had read an article a couple of years ago that, um, and I don't know, I don't remember the guy's name, but he won something and he used his moment to say, I, I went to sleep hungry a lot of times. Uh-huh. Shabazz Napier of Utah. Yes, that's exactly correct. Yeah, he played for the Heat for a short while. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And then people started to look into it. And one of the NCAA rules was that there was a certain, you know, you couldn't just, there was a certain, like three meals a day or something. And then some kids had class and there's all these things and practice Practice and stuff. And and they weren't able to to eat all of those three of those meals, not to mention these are athletes. So they probably have a much higher need for calories they burn and, and intake. Tons and, of calories, exactly. yeah. And so there was a big public outcry. Like at the very least, these people need to be able to eat food. As much food as they need. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna pay them 
You're not going to fucking starve them either, for God's sake. And so the NCAA was like, okay, okay, okay. And they relaxed the rules. And that allowed for unlimited food for people that are on the full ride. And that's allowed a lot of um, universities to bring in nutritionists and, and things to help the players know what to eat and, and how many calories and protein and all the stuff that that's necessary. But the fact that that didn't already exist and only existed because the public found out about these arcane things and the, the way that these players are being treated, it just... Right, it took the voice of a big-time player to really yeah. get anything changed. Exactly. Um, and that and that's just, it seems criminal to me that that, that kind of stuff could yeah, happen. Yeah, and I got to be honest, I had heard about that sort of secondhand through the grapevine whispers about that kind of thing maybe seven, eight, nine years ago. And I just kind of poo-pooed it and thought, guys on a full ride, I'm sure they get all the food they want. Mm-mm. And no, yeah, it was a big gaping hole in the system. Yeah. Because <laughs> totally they were like, oh, you can't have one college can't offer more food and then benefit. Yeah. It's bullshit. And, and it used to be... Um, like you can get a bagel, but you couldn't get cream right. cheese on it. Then right. Impermissible benefit. Impermissible benefit. Mark be Emmert cheese, is going to be there to wrap, or, your, wrap your wrist. Yeah, cream cheese, right. peanut Jesus. butter, or something else. So you can have a plain dry bagel, but buy your own cream cheese. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, seriously. Unbelievable, man. So you've had – I mean one thing I know because, again, I used to, to date an NCAA athlete, but this is already circa early 2000s. What is the, the weirdest or most ridiculous arcane rule or bylaw that you had to follow as an NCAA athlete that just didn't make much sense to you? Oh, jeez. Um, man, I'll I, have to think for that one because that's um, – Yeah. I had heard yeah. drug, drug testing was a little weird that they sent somebody in the bathroom with you or right outside yeah, the bathroom. Yeah, that was weird. Um, you're – yeah. Paying like you you pay you lift your shirt up to show you don't have like any apparatus I guess or um, you know on your torso you or whatever yeah then you yeah then you drop your pants right in front of the guy and he's watching the entire time and uh um he's like in this you walk in the stall and he's in there with you and then if you can't go he just you know starts flushing one of the toilets um or the <laughs> urinal right outside of it. To make a water noise for you. Uh, Holy until what? You can go and, um, yeah, so that was always pretty weird. Um, never fun on drug testing day. You, yeah, you get told like late the night before um, that you had to be there at 5 a.m. Uh, ready to go. So, you know, if you have up late having to study or something and planning on getting a little more sleep, you're kind of hosed in that aspect. Um, the other oh, thing so I, I had to think of, oh, sorry, I had to think of some others, uh, as we go yeah. and I'll let you know if I, anything comes up, but, um, yeah, that was probably the least pleasant part of being a division one athlete. Gross. Yeah. I, I'd have to like take a Xanax or something. That sounds awful. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you get into that job. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was health insurance and health benefits, um, while you're a college athlete and post being a college athlete. Yeah. I've talked about some of the health risks of particularly football, but basketball too. Um, there is a, there's a hole there. Is that right? Yeah. And it's pretty gaping. And I think, um, that's the next thing that's going to have a big outcry, um, against the NCAA and against the institutions itself. Um, what is the system right now? So I know, 
the schools offer some level of health insurance, but if you have your own insurance, you're charged that first. So luckily, you know, I'm on my parents' insurance, so, Mm -hmm. you know, we're able to get most things covered through that. Um, Thanks, Obamacare. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, when I was in college, I couldn't. I had to get my own insurance. I couldn't be able to. Oh, really? After I was 18. Oh, I didn't know it was that young. Wow. Oh, yeah. 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 Pre-Obamacare. Obama made it so that it was 26, but back in the day, once you turn 18. You're on your own, kid. Mm -hmm. Don't get hit by a truck. (laughs) Yeah, and, and... there was no requirement for employers to provide insurance, and if you had a pre-existing condition, or colleges, condition, some did, some didn't. No. Yeah, I knew about the exist pre-existing condition and the uh, employers, but I didn't know about the you know how young you had to. Get your yeah, I went a couple years without insurance because there was I just no way to get it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Couldn't afford it. There's no way, That's and scary. I had pre-existing conditions. Good times. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so I know when I was leaving Miami, um, you know, after our bowl game, our last bowl game, uh, we had to sign a medical form um saying i don't know if it was either six months or just for the next semester that you can get continued health care until um a certain date um and then you're you know cut off from the university um so you had to kind of list any lingering issues that you were having at the time or um that you could get treated for that next semester but after that you're on your own um i think the Biggest issue with healthcare-wise in the NCAA, and I think the thing that is really going to could change going in the future is um, team or doctors and um, trainers that are employed by the university itself, rather than being a third party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there's a conflict of interest there. Oh, it's, and I could go on and on about the conflict of interest that I have dealt through. Um, being a division one athlete with that, but it's just, you know, guys, you know, having to play before they're ready or, um, so what you know, you're saying and, is for the cheap seats. So because the doctors and trainers are employed by the university for the specific purpose of treating college athletes, their interest is really not in your health and getting, getting you on the field so that the team is better. Right. Exactly. That is exactly. criminal. Right. So like, for our high school, we employed a trainer that the, the trainer was employed by a, a hospital. So, you know, he doesn't have to listen to the coach at all. He has no pressure through that. It's he's getting paid by the hospital system. Um, right. So that's, you know, they have a lot less stress um, on their end and they're, you know, have the, the player's best interest in, at heart. Um, that's not really always the case. You know, not, not and I, I don't want to speak for every single trainer out there because there's a lot of really great people in the industry, but there's some that shouldn't be in it um, and that really don't have the player's best interest. Um, right. There should be an absolute separation. Yeah. And, and Miami, from everything I've read, has a pretty, pretty top notch training staff. But in, in terms of what the goal is, and you're absolutely right, Austin, because I took a couple semesters of athletic training in college, I was heading in that direction for a little bit. And the first thing they tell you is, okay, our role is to get the player back on the field as soon as possible. They didn't say our role is to heal the player and make sure that it's like get the player back on the field. That is, that is our role as athletic trainers. No. No. And especially for doctors. I mean, you take an oath. Right. And your your responsibility is to the health of your patient. Yeah. Everything else be damned. Sports medicine is a whole different animal. 
Uh, criminal. Yeah. So one spring I had fractured a vertebrae in my back, um, and had some bulged discs. Um, we had a head athletic trainer and then we had a head physical therapist, which the head athletic trainer superseded everyone, even though that's a lesser degree than a physical therapy degree is, um, professionally. So I, you know, played three weeks with this fracture. My leg is going numb every single day. I'm dragging my leg across campus in massive pain. My, the physical therapist knew what was wrong, but I was still forced to play for several weeks before finally getting uh, in for an MRI and them realizing, you know, what damage had actually occurred. Uh, Then I, so, you know, I had to take off the last two weeks of spring ball. And then throughout the summer, I was, they said it would have been like a six week injury. It was almost three months. Then one of the team doctors, um, before a visit, before I was getting an injection, had insinuated that I was smoking the entire time, and that's why, I'm, or possibly, and that's why my the bone wasn't healing. <laughs> what? Which For fuck's we sake. did drug tested, and I had never failed a drug test um, in my life. So that's, you know, there's. <laughs> I don't even know if there's a scientific basis for that hypothesis. No, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you can imagine how shocked I was and my mom, who was sitting next to me at the time. God, she must uh, have been livid. So that's why I heavily disagree with the university health system being a part of, uh, you know, in conjunction with the athletic department. Agreed. Yeah, well, that's totally understandable based on that story. And that's yeah. a really, really, yeah. really... That's just one of great you know, <laughs> several that I have had, and many other players. You know, who I you know I don't want to speak for, but yeah, you know, things could have been handled a lot differently in many cases. Many injuries could have been prevented or healed quicker had you know a, a better system been put in place. And this idea that when you're leaving the university system, you better know all the long-term effects of the playing of football and write it on a sheet of paper. Um, that's ridiculous. There's no way that you can possibly know the long-term effects of some of the things that are going to be a result of having been a division one athlete. Right. And And I have back pain a lot of days. I mean, I feel a lot better than I did. I was still able to play football after that for two years. Um, but I'm definitely not the same as I was before that. Um, there's, you know, certain exercises I can't do anymore. Um, you know, I, I can't sit or stand for a super long period of time. Um, and you know, the, the, it's things I might may have to deal with probably the rest of my life. You know, I knew I was getting into playing football, but if things were handled differently, I, I know I wouldn't have had the, the severity that I did of the problems. And you'll be paying for that for the rest of your life rather than the system that Right. That that created that, essentially. I mean, I think there has to be some accountability for these universities for the long-term health of their players after they leave. Well, I I have a question regarding that, Austin, because you've had a unique opportunity where you've played at sort of every level of collegiate football, like Division three to just, you know, just above Division one to the very highest level uh, FBS. And like, do you see the difference in terms of 
uh, from you know the big, huge revenue generating football programs to you know just oh, this is our school's football team essentially, which is basically what you get with Division Three uh, in most cases. And like, is there a market difference in terms of like? The, the health of the players and you know training or is it all kind of the same they're all just trying to rush everybody back on the field and in that sense no matter what level you're at um it's so there i see some similarities but i'd say for the most part that it is at the the highest level it's they're under much more scrutiny and really trying to rush you back quicker um than the others i think a lot of that can also just depend on you know who your trainer is um yeah and what type of injury you do have but i'd say um based off my experiences yeah that you know fbs football it's yeah more different than the other levels and and you endure that you know no offense as as a guy who's you know a scout team guy and and a special teams guy and can imagine if you're the starting quarterback or starting linebacker or you know the the pressure that must be involved to get back on the field if you're trying right. to fight through an injury and i'm sure you saw that firsthand yeah i did and some you know some guys who were you know heavy contributors were you know received injuries and have had long-term effects that they really shouldn't have and, and these and these guys are ultra competitive, and they want to get right. back on the, on the field. Well, that, that was going to be my next question: does, does the pressure come more from the guys just saying, "No, no, no, I'm fine," or just get me on the field, shoot me up, I don't care what you do, or is it the more from the training staff saying, "No, no, no, you're fine, get back out there"? No, it's it's, based off everything that I have seen and experienced, it's much more on the training staff side. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that some guys, you know, here and there try to rush back sooner than they should mm-hmm. um, or maybe rush through some of their uh, therapy because, you know, that does happen. But the overwhelming majority, it's from the training steps. Right? God. Because no yeah. one knows. That has to be the Only you thing know how you feel and if you're ready or not to return. Um, no one else can tell you that. It's right. you and you only. So That has to be the next thing that's addressed. It just has to. I mean – I know, again, I'm not like a giant sports fan, so I, I'm not trying to minimize fans or whatever, but mm-hmm. it's completely and utterly absurd to put people's lives and health and bodies at risk for something that is not, that doesn't matter ultimately. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like Entertainment. Entertainment. It's entertainment, fundamentally. And it's some people's livelihoods, and I understand that it's a that part of it, but to have the institutions... Um, have so little care for the lives and health and bodies of these, of these young men is, uh, it's gladiator games. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But we're, we're in the year 2018. So we, we need to do better. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Austin, I hope you stick around. We got more stuff to talk about and, uh, get into some politics and stuff. If you'd like, that would be awesome. And, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Try to find a way 
Hello and welcome back to Irreverent Testimony. We're here with Austin Fenninger, uh, who just finished his senior uh, season at Drake University. And he's telling us about his days as a collegiate football player. And we're talking about all things with being an NCAA athlete and uh, particularly a big-time college football athlete and some of the pitfalls therein. And we only have Austin for a little bit, Rachel. So do you have any more questions before he asks the jet? I guess my question to you would be what – if you could change anything or any things about the way the NCAA operates, what would they be? Uh, well, <laughs> there's a lot of things, but like we um, started off earlier, um, you know, just some a little bit higher level of compensation for players. It doesn't have to be anything significant, but, you know, enough that they can, you know, be comfortable on campus, never have to worry about getting another job because they don't have time for that. Um, you know, enough to maybe send home, a little bit home to mom or their siblings that they have. Um, so that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the separation of, um, you know, healthcare from the university. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to say, you know, I have no ill will towards University of Miami. Um, you know, I, I love the program very much. I donate money to them. Um, and, you know, I want to see them succeed. That's just one thing, you know, I would like to see them change as well as every university that employs, um, you know, healthcare through their own health system. Um, see, you know, there's not too many other glaring changes, um, I could think of the top of my head at least. Yeah. Um, very easy things. Yeah, they are. I I think the amount of money that flows through, um, it would be very easy. And I think very, it's very necessary to make sure at the very least that the players who are putting their bodies on the line for entertainment are well taken care of by trained medical staff who have their best interests in mind and that financially they're not struggling. There's no reason for the coaches to make millions and and the universities to make millions and these players to be in any way financially burdened or, or even, you know, on that precipice of, can I pay this or, you know, to your point, send some money back home. I think that's entirely reasonable. And uh, another thing, and it's been discussed some recently is I think everybody should get a a one-time free transfer um, where you don't have a penalty to sit out a year. Um, You know, you could transfer any level um, to any conference, any team, uh, even if it's within your own conference, I think just a one-time, you know, if you get to a school and don't like it or homesick, or you think you just made, you didn't um, find the right fit for you. I don't think they say it's in the player's best interest and it's not to make them. It's not. And and to, for those of you following along who aren't big college football fans and don't know know when you, (laughs) let's say that you sign with the university of Miami and you're from Kentucky and you get really, actually this just happened with a kid from California and you really miss home California. And after your freshman season, you're like, I really want to go home you can go ahead and transfer, but the next year you have to sit out the entire year. You can go to school, but you can't play football for the entire Why? year. Right. You can only practice. You just can't play in any games. Why? Because um, it's in the student-athlete's best interest is what the <laughs> NCAA says. So, what is the actual reason that they're trying um, to – They're trying to dissuade kids from transferring. 
Right. You don't. So they don't we want. Have, we have you. You're. You're ours. They literally just want to own you. Right. And a coach can leave whenever he wants. Florida State's new coach Willie Taggart is on his third team in one, uh, you know, calendar year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he doesn't pay a penalty to leave. He doesn't have to wait uh, a year to be a coach. No. Imagine that. You know, and then the school covers his buyout from uh, Oregon. So, you know, he faces no penalty himself. He keeps moving up to a higher salary job, um, yet his players can't leave. The the exception is if you've already graduated, then you right, can transfer without sitting out. But a lot of these kids haven't. They've just gotten started, and that they're is- – and they realize I got to get home. I got a sick mom, or I just don't like it here, or the weather's too hot. It's too cold. I mean, whatever reason you want, you're 18 years old and you just made a decision where you're going to spend your next four or five years, and maybe you made the wrong one. I mean, it happens, right? And- there has to be some kind of autonomy. These these are not pawns in a game. These are human beings that get to make choices about their lives. This is insane. Yeah, I really don't like the transfer rules either. I mean, they even extend to when you sign your letter of intent. Like right. You're, you're, you're locked. Uh, in. Even you signing a piece of paper, you're locked, yeah. locked in you're, at that point. Yeah, and then your coach gets fired or leaves after that. You know, sometimes they, they, they wave that. Sort of, but other times they don't. So it's kind of a, you know, they don't have a set rule thing with that. I feel like more people should know more about this. Well, that's this why we have and have Austin on. I know. To share some it's just an, It's just – I, my brain is going to explode <laughs> with all of this. I uh, I get that it's a, an incredible opportunity for a lot of kids, and I'm happy for that, but that is not payment enough to take away and to ask and for the sacrifice that we're asking. I, I That's insane. That's It's not okay. I mean, any other, any other like, anecdotes or stories or any important points that you think because a lot of our listeners, they're probably not the biggest sports fans. They just they don't know a lot of this stuff. Right. One of the main reasons we wanted to have you on is to sort of, you know, expose this side of it and and anything else that you think people should know that they may not know. Oh, jeez. Um, things they may not know about sports. <laughs> just like the the that yeah, it's hard. Um, I guess just the sheer amount of time that, you know that are people that athletes put in, um, mm. you know, you, you, that is a full-time job and, you know, you were up at 5 a.m. most days, depending on your team schedule. Uh, so like in Miami, we would have morning practices. Um, if you were injured and had to get treatment, you had to be in the training room by five thirty in the morning. If you're a minute late, you know, you face punishment, um, so, you know, you're getting up at five to make it there in time. You get your treatment. You, uh, then go to team breakfast at like six 30 in the morning. Um, then you go back to the, into the football building. You have, you know, your position meetings, special teams meeting, your whole team meeting, um, watching film. Then you'll have a lift, um, some days of the week during, before practice. Um, then you'll have a, you know, two and a half hour practice and then you're, off the practice field by uh, it was like eleven forty five for us. Some guys is some guys would have class at we would start at twelve twenty would be the first class that football players could take. Yeah, and you've um, been, you've been up for seven hours at this point. 
Right. Um, so, you know, we'd have a lunch in the locker room or in, in our lounge, we're just connected to it. So you're, you're hustling, trying to eat lunch, shower, change, um, get all your equipment turned in to be washed and then make it across campus, um, you know, all in like a 30 minute time frame sometime, oh sometimes, sometimes. Um, and then if you, you know, you can't skip class, at least at Miami, you couldn't, um, I don't know, you know, not every school is right. As, stringent. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we would have, um, you know, some of the guys on the support staff or operations guys would drive around and have a list of each guy, um, and what classroom they're supposed to be in. So they would do random checks, um, to make sure you're there. If you're not, then you, uh, we called it sunrise where, you'd be with the strength coaches, uh, you know, doing a workout at four 30 in the morning before all the other normal stuff you would have during the next day or that day. Um, you know, so then you're in class, you know, all day. Um, sometimes it'd be evening meetings with the new staff. They really cut most of those out though. And then you're, you know, studying, trying to get good enough grades to at least stay eligible for some guys, other guys, you know, they're, like me, I was trying to get on the Dean's list and things like that. Um, then you're studying and then it's nighttime and you're, you know, you're tired and you know, you, you don't have any much time to do other things. Um, you know, it's can affect your social life definitely. And you're, you can't have another job. Um, so that's where, you know, you really, I loved it and I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, I, I'm really glad I played a sport in college, but, um, that's the reality that a lot of the, maybe the casual fan doesn't realize is uh, how much work is putting being put in, even in the off season, it's still a full-time deal. Yeah. Yeah. And you're also getting a college degree and that's. that's right. That's a job. hard enough. That right. it is. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Especially at you know, Miami is a top 50 uh, national university ranked most years. Um, and it's a medium-sized private school, so it's it's tough. And yeah, you can't um, in the back of a 150-person auditorium. And sleep. right, a lot of the classes are 20 people or smaller. Um, so you're you got, you're getting called on, and you're having to participate in class as well. Um, so it's, it's you know it's a tough balance, but you know I it's doable if you you know put the effort into it. But that's more than we, more than most people ask of themselves, certainly. And oh, without a doubt. Uh, it's sort of extraordinary that you're all able to do that. And um, yeah, God. Yeah. So you know, when you see your favorite team suit up on Saturday, and you're just thinking, just you know, just beat these friggin' guys, you know, on the other side of the ball. I just think about everything that's going into what their lives are like and how they've prepared and understand they are doing their best. Yeah. yeah. And remember, I think for me, like these are human beings that have lives and that have, they're human beings. They're not just pawns that you watch smash into each other and throw things, you know, and remembering yeah. that and, and recognizing the humanity of athletes, I think is something that we could all do better at. Sure. And, and just to pivot to football for a quick second for Austin has to run. Uh, I'm sure you watched intently the Kane season this year. And, yeah. And you saw how they kind of ran out of steam. And that didn't surprise me because I just thought they had so little depth at such key positions. Right. You had so well, many. That's one. Oh, go ahead. Well, they had so uh, many freshmen playing and so many yeah. guys that were 
like scout team guys or you know these types of types of players playing meaningful minutes and i think i was talking with rachel after the notre dame games like i have no idea how they're doing this they shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. they're way ahead of schedule mm-hmm. and then eventually it did catch up with them it, it always right. it does the depth was a huge thing um a big thing was when uh hurricane irma came through mm-hmm. um the school was canceled i think two or three weeks um, they lost so they, 10 practices, which is huge. Yeah, well, they, so they had to actually cancel a game, couldn't reschedule it. They lost a bunch of practices, but that took away their, um, you know, their bye week. So then they're playing the rest of the way through. No rest. Um, you know, without a break. Yeah, no rest. So that's like 10 weeks straight, and that just takes a toll on you. You know, by the you know middle middle of the season, you know, the, the first half of the season, you're excited because you're getting back into football season. and. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of energy. Um, you're just happy to hitting, be hitting other guys and not your your teammates again. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you hit a little bit of a wall. Um, you know where you're. It's you're starting to get a little burned out. You're in the same routine. Your body's hurting more. Um, I think Miami really peaked later than some teams do. Um, you know how, how we saw them versus Virginia Tech and Notre Dame, how they looked unstoppable mm-hmm. because they had such a big break at the beginning of the season that they weren't quite as worn down right. at that aspect or that time. But then, you know, quickly after that, you saw uh, guys don't look the same. No, they just look spent. They, they looked exhausted. Right. I, some of those big victories took a lot out of them. Um, yeah, and then so they, I think they lost Amon and they lost Herndon and they yeah, lost Mark right. and it's like – what what do you program and that's hard to come, come okay. back. surprised they played Wisconsin as well as they did Wisconsin is you know right there with the with the top four right they just and, out on the and, and they were right there with them so I mean I think that's a pretty I, all the fans are pissed off and they want to fire all the coaches and everybody hates everything <laughs> yeah. I think they did an incredible job this year I was super proud of them I wanted to yeah I think they're so definitely ahead of schedule like, I, I thought they were just lovely and they did a great job and I was super proud of them. Well, Austin, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know you got to run back to Des Moines, right? Yep. Yeah. I finished off this last semester and graduate with my master's and, uh, awesome. Start my, uh, the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to yeah, us. Yeah. It was really great talking to you, man. And anytime yeah, you, want to, you want to come on and talk about this kind of stuff, you're welcome. Anytime when you're in Boulder, hit us up, let us know. We'd love to hang out and, uh, thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for reaching out to me. I, I really enjoyed this. So it's some very interesting topics that I normally don't get to talk about. <laughs> well, thank you. Cool. Anytime, buddy. Yeah, have a good one. All right, take care. Bye. So that was Austin Fenninger with our new format, uh, College Football Talk, here on Sports <laughs> Radio Irreverent Testimony. Uh, no, that was that was a good talk. Yeah. Uh, we learned some things. I learned some things. Yeah. Rachel learned some things. Yes. I hope you guys learned some things. And, you know, this is something that isn't talked about a lot because if you're not a sports fan, you just kind of ignore it, but we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And again, I've been a huge sports fan my whole life. I've been an athlete. I wasn't a college athlete like Austin. I stopped after high school. But, like, uh, the more I learn, the harder it is for me to justify both worlds of how these yeah. kids are being – they're being used. Yes, they're they in are. indentured servitude yes. to make the university and coaches and networks shitloads of money and being treated something just above a slave in many cases. Yes. 
And yes, they're getting a college education out of it, but like most of these kids don't have a pot to piss in. But so many people get full ride scholarships for education and they don't have nearly the limitations that college athletes do. Right. And to his point, if you write a song and you're a musician and you're on a full ride, that's your song. And you can sell it and you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah, and it's funny you mention that because Miami actually Miami actually had a player who was able to do that. Mm. And he's going to be drafted into the NFL. He's a really good football player, but he's also a very talented musician and producer. And he's kind of deciding what to do and he's going to try to do both. And if I were him, I'd just do the producer, not necessarily your brain. but Right, but um, the point is that it's really unlike anything else. Yeah. It's really unlike any anything else that exists. And it's... Um, <clears throat> well, we forgot to bring up Jeremy Bloom. We should have brought him up. And who is he? He's the guy from CU. This was so ridiculous. I remember it was 10, 15 years ago. He was a football player for CU Boulder. And he was also a really great skier. So he got these skiing endorsements and oh, the skiing yeah. endorsement money. And then the NCAA said, well, you're only getting these, these skiing endorsements because... Your, of your recognition as a college football player so now you're not eligible to play college football because you was, can't get money outside I mean they literally just want to own these young men yeah but, but it's you, horrifying but you you can though and that was the problem the way they were interpreting it was effing ridiculous yeah and by the time it went through the court system and I think eventually a court may, might have found for him but like his his playing career was over it's over by that point yeah, yeah. so it was ridiculous yeah um but anyway, let's move on from sports. But seriously, do before we go, just think about like, even if you hate sports, and I'm right there with you most of the time. Other than I love the Hurricanes, um, these these are these are young men. These are often underprivileged minority young men, and mm-hmm. the way that they're being treated, I think, is only allowable because of that. And the the um, to your point, people want to like sports and they don't want to think too much about it, but we need to think about it more and we need yeah. to be more thoughtful about how we're treating these young men. And Absolutely. Women. I, yeah. I know I am. Yeah, I know. And I don't know exactly what I can do about it, but I think having guys like Austin on and talking about it and hopefully spreading the word and getting people that don't care about start. sports is involved too. Yeah, I mean, I really, it matters to me. It matters that, that these young people are treated better. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good start. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and I love that he's getting into law, too. So maybe he can yeah. do something about that at some point. Because yeah. he obviously cares. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So, you want to talk about shithole countries? <laughs> oh, man. Yes, I do. Woo, doggy. Uh, sure, go. One, two, three, go. <laughs> <laughs> what do, what do we president. got? I mean... Let's not that it's surprising that the president is a racist piece of shit, but uh, this particular one has, so has, has spawned some. I wasn't sure how it was going to be interpreted by the media, but so basically he was in a meeting uh, in the Oval Office um, and they were talking about immigration. Yeah, like they were trying to hash out an immigration deal. DACA. Or, yeah. And um, as it relates to the budget and as it relates to shutting down the government and, and all he, the other And things. he literally turned to grandpa at the Thanksgiving table. Yeah. And he literally. said, why? We're talking about Haiti and Africa. And he was saying, why do we let people from these shithole countries in? Why can't we have more immigrants from Norway? <laughs> Now, Travis, would you like to explain the difference between <laughs> Haitians and Africans and people from Norway? Just off the top of your head, what would be the reason he might not want Haitians and Africans in this country, but Norwegians might be a good fit? 
their fish diet. Yeah. So they're fucking white. Yeah. Um, it, there's so much to unpack with this. It, it's 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 so blatantly racist that it's almost laughable. And I, most of the media, thankfully, just called it out for what it was. Yeah, Some I was of them surprised. still know how to handle it. The whole first day, NPR did what NPR has been doing, which drives me crazy. And so all I heard was all, all day, the first day, was the president used some vulgar language. And it's like, it's not about the fucking language, you fucking morons. I hate to call NPR morons, but in this case, they were being morons. Right. And today, the Washington Post also had a dumb story like the history of use of profanity by presidents. You know, as if that's right. the, that's, that's not the, the story. Fu- I don't give a fuck about. <laughs> Come on. I know, but, but but for the most part, people. Don, a few hours later, Don Lemon came around and said, "Good, you know, good evening, America. The president of the United States is a racist." <laughs> and you were like, "Oh shit, he's going to get in trouble for that." But then it spread. Yeah, it was on MSNBC. It was on everywhere where they were like, "This is racist. Yeah. It's just fucking racist." And, and and Fox really just went all in and said, "You know what? This is why he got elected. He's telling it like it is." Yeah. And Tucker Carlson jumped in and said, what are we saying? These aren't shithole countries. If the yards aren't shithole countries, why do the people want to come here? And um, of course, Trump did what he always does to these idiots. <laughs> well, then the White House came out and said, you know, oh, no, he fine. was just being honest. Yeah, he yeah. was just being honest. And, he, you know, that's why people like him is because he tells the truth in a way that people don't talk about. Right, and right, it's, right. You know, he's just, he's just being honest. And then he comes out and he's like, I, I didn't say, say that. that. <laughs> You're like, whoa, wait, so you, he wasn't just being honest? Or what? Are, we're defending right, a racist right. statement that he, he didn't make. He leaves his defenders to twist in the wind. Oh, my I, God. Uh, they never learn, you they idiots. They never learn. God. Um, so I ran across this article, uh, New York Times, but I love Charles M. Blow. And I want to read good. it. I want to read it yeah. because it's just lovely. It's called The Lowest White Man. I guess Donald Trump was eager to counter the impression in Michael Wolff's book that he is uh, mentally small and possibly insane. On Tuesday, he allowed a bipartisan session in the White House about immigration to be televised for nearly an hour. Surely he thought that would be able to demonstrate to the world his lucidity and acumen, his grasp of the issues, and his relish for rapprochement with his political adversaries. But instead, what came through was the image of a man who had absolutely no idea what he was talking about, A man who says things that are 180 degrees from the things he said before. A man who has no clear line of reasoning. A man who's clearly out of his depth and willing to say and do anything to please the people in front of him. He demonstrated once again that he is a man without principle, interested only in how good he can make himself look and how much money he can make. Yet he has an intrinsic hostility to people who are not white, particularly when they challenge him. But as a matter of policy, the whole idea of building a wall for which Mexico would pay was just a cheap campaign stunt to once again please the people in front of him. Trump is not committed to that wall on principle. He's committed only to looking good as a result of whatever comes of it. Mexico is never going to pay for it, and he knows it. He's always known it. That was just another lie. Someone must have stuck the phrases chain migration and diversity lottery into his brain, easy buzzwords, you see, and he can now rail against those ideas for applause lines. But he is completely malleable on actual immigration policy. He doesn't have the stamina for that much reading. Learning about immigration would require reading more words than would fit on a television news cryon. If Donald Trump follows through with what he said during that meeting, his base will once again be betrayed. He will have proved once again that he was saying anything to keep them angry, even telling lies. He will have demonstrated once again his incompetence and unfitness. And once again, they won't care. Hmm. 
That is because Trump is man as message, man as Messiah. Trump's support isn't philosophical, but theological. Trumpism is a religion founded on patriarchy and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It is the belief that even the least qualified man is a better choice than the most qualified woman. Oh, <laughs> well, we learned that. And a belief that the most vile, anti-intellectual, scandal-plagued simpleton of a white man is sufficient to follow in the presidential footsteps of the best educated, most eloquent, most affable black man. Mm-hmm. As President Lyndon B. Johnson said in the 1960s to a young Bill Moyers, Quote, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. He'll give him, hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Mm-hmm. Trump's supporters are saying to us, screaming to us, that although he may be the lowest white man, he is still better than Barack Obama, the best colored man. In a way, Donald Trump represents white people's right to be wrong and still be right. He is the embodiment of the unassailability of white power and white privilege. To abandon him is to give up on the pact that America has made with its white citizens from the beginning. The government will help to underwrite white safety and success, even at the expense of other people in this country, whether they be Native Americans, African Americans, or immigrants. But this idea of elevating the lowest white man over those more qualified or deserving didn't begin with Johnson's articulation and won't end with Trump's manifestation. This is woven into the fabric of the flag. As I've written before, when Alabama called a constitutional convention in 1901, Emmett O'Neill, who later became governor, argued that the state should, quote, lay deep and strong and permanent in the fundamental law of the state, the foundation of white supremacy forever in Alabama. As part of that strategy, he argued, quote, I don't believe it is good policy to go up in the hills and tell them that Booker Washington or council or anybody else is allowed to vote because they are educated. The minute you do that, every white man who is not educated is disenfranchised on the same proposition. <laughs> in his essay, Black Reconstruction in America, W.E.B. Du Bois... No, Du Bois. That's how he pronounced his name. Okay. Discussed why poor whites didn't make common cause with poor blacks and slaves, but instead prized their roles as overseers and slave catchers, eagerly joining the Klan. This fed the white man's vanity because it associated him with the masters, Du Bois wrote. He continued, Slavery bred in the poor white a dislike of Negro toil of all sorts. He never regarded himself as a laborer or as part of any labor movement. If he had any ambition at all, it was to become a planter and to own, quote, niggers. To these Negroes, he transferred all the dislike and hatred which he had for the whole slave system. The result was that the system was held stable and intact by the poor white. For white supremacy to be made perfect, the lowest white man must be exalted above those who are black. No matter how much of an embarrassment and a failure Trump proves to be, his exploits must be judged a success. He must be deemed a correction to Barack Obama Obama, and a superior choice to Hillary Clinton. White supremacy demands it. Patriarchy demands it. Trump supporters demand it. Yeah. So right now, as as is the case, Trump is obviously cratering in the polls. Um, I think before this week, you probably would have if, – if you could have taken an, a, an accurate snap poll, it probably would have been like something 38 approve, 62 disapprove, mm-hmm. I think is my best guess. And right now it's probably more like maybe 35, 36 yeah. and 65 underwater. Um, but I guarantee you if you broke that down by race, he'd still be above water with whites overall. Yeah. Maybe a hell of a lot closer than on election day, but he'd still be above water. Yeah. Um, especially white men, he'd be he'd still be way above water. And white women. 
Uh, white white women, I bet he's underwater now because he only won white women by three points. Now, the fact that he won white women at all is horrifying and disgusting and jaw-dropping. Roy Moore won white women. Yeah, that's in Alabama. But I'm saying right. nationally, Overall. Trump won white women 53-47. Now, the fact that he white won white women at all is stupefying. Yes. So today, so today he's probably a little bit underwater with white women. And he's probably still well out ahead with white men. And overall whites, he's probably still above water. He's grossly underwater with everybody else, which is why he's that far underwater. He's 95.5 with blacks, 95.5 with Hispanics. Yeah. You know, all other people of color, he's probably 95.5. So, um, but the point is white America is not going to give up the ghost yet, no matter what this fucking guy does. No. It's like I'm always saying, like... It doesn't ma- like okay. So the story came out this week that um, he uh, his attorney, the Wall Street Journal. By the way, this is not some tabloid. The Wall Street Journal wrote a story that said that his attorney, Michael Cohen, paid <laughs> off Stormy Daniels, who is a porn star, to keep her quiet about Trump hiring her for sex. And then a photo surfaced of Trump and Stormy Daniels hanging out. And it doesn't fucking matter because. And this is what my point doesn't fucking none of it matters because he's just racist enough. It doesn't matter if he fucks porn stars or pays for prostitutes or I, nothing matter. Rachel, colluded with Russia Rachel, or we're, we're anything overlooking else. something very important that Armando brought up. And it was like a smack in the forehead. Like, oh, my God, you're right. Oh, my God. I didn't think of that because my first initial reaction was. Yeah, God, that's gross. And of course, it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. But who cares? It's illegal. You know? uh, well, this is what I'm getting to, right? And, Ar- and Armando said, okay, we know that Trump never uses his own money for anything. So if this was campaign money to pay hush money or, or from his charity to pay hush money for a, a porn star... That that is friggin' that is second special counsel worthy. Yeah, the fact that he hired someone for sex is illegal. Let's not forget. Sure, shouldn't be. It's hard. It it's hard to prove. But it is. Yeah. illegal. Yeah. But what money did he use? Is a really great question. And you think he he dipped into his own personal bank account, which he never ever 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 does for anything? I don't know. I bet it was campaign money. But if his lawyer paid her off, oh, it's these people are be... so sloppy and so arrogant. I know, I know. Do you, would you put anything past? No. Them? Could have been from the Trump Foundation. Could have been campaign funds. Could have been Russian laundered money. I mean, who fucking knows? Yeah. Do you think it was from you know his Capital One personal bank account? I doubt it. <laughs> I don't know. He never does that. I don't know. I don't know. But it's a good point. Never spends his own money on anything. First of all, I don't point. think he has any of his own money. It's all borrowed yeah. money yeah. and Russian mob yeah. laundered money yeah. and campaign money. Yeah. And it's all fake. Yeah. He doesn't have any money. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. There's so much other shit everybody's looking at. I could totally. But Armando is like, he's like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. No, like <laughs> I bet he used campaign money and that is really super illegal. Yeah. That's a violation of uh, a lot of, yeah, the FEC for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. For sure. So that's interesting. Yeah. But it doesn't, what I'm saying is it doesn't, none of that matters to his supporters, to Charles M. Blow's no, point. No, of course The point not. is 
he's racist enough for them. And that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. And that 38%, he's right. He could shoot someone in Times Square and they wouldn't fucking care. As long as it wasn't, you know, as long as he doesn't say Black Lives Matter, they don't care. Right. Or he gets caught kissing a dude. Even that. No. We can probably get away with. They are not as homophobic as they are racist. Yeah, I guess. Maybe the some of the evangelical leaders. Now kiss a black dude, sure. you're fucked. <laughs> that's that's too much. That is way over the line. But it's funny because the Stormy Daniels thing, I was thinking about the recent poll that just came out um, about his approval ratings by religion. Yeah. Highest approval rating among Mormons. Well, that doesn't surprise me that much because everybody was jumping up and down because him and... Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney had a spat, mm-hmm. and they said Utah might be in play for Hillary Clinton. And it turns out, no, he crushed it in Utah. Yeah, like 80% or yeah, some yeah, shit. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, no. no also, more. Mormons have a very dark history with race. Yes, people forget that. They really do. Yes. Like, very badly. Like, yeah. there, are, there are YouTube videos that you can watch that have been uploaded from the 70s that are talking about how God made black people black because they were evil yes. and he wanted to mark yes. them so that we would know that they were evil. Yeah, we're not, ma- we're not making this up. No, no, this no. Is a, this, this is, is in the Golden Tablets thing. Joseph Smith Book of Mormon stuff. Correct. Yeah. Now, they rescinded that in the 1980s. Yes. Black people were allowed to become Mormon. Shockingly, they didn't feel like it. But... <laughs> Some do. The church allowed black people to become Mormons in literally like in the 1980s, late 70s, 1980s. you see BYU, there's some black players on that team. Yeah. Some good ones too. Um, but Mormons I, I can't ha- imagine Mormons have... why you would play on that team. Well, would, or again. for Ole Miss University, the running rebels, but <coughs> that's not my business. It's theirs. Again, it's individuals and their lives and, yes. you know, yep, money and things. But, absolutely. But yeah, Mormons have a, a very, very rough history with uh, race. Yes. And so that was not that surprising. But given their sort of puritanical ways, again, it, it doesn't matter that he no. fucks porn stars and pays them off. And it never did. That, that stuff was all red herring stuff, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Like we think about the values voters yes. and all the, yes. oh, they're so upset with Bill Clinton over right. the Monica stuff. Right. And, and Anthony oh, Weiner's a monster. And, and he put dick pics and abortion. Yeah. It has nothing to do with that. It has about, it's to Charles M. Blow's point, it is about patriarchy and white supremacy. Yes. It's about controlling women's sexuality mm-hmm. and keeping anyone who's not white lower than white people. Yeah. Period. Yeah. End of story. Nothing else matters. And, and that Nothing. veneer is coming off, and we'll we'll forget it, of course, when when Trump is gone, and we're back to sort of normal generic Republican versus normal generic Democrat, which I think we'll get back to, I because, don't know. because I think people are going to get sick of this stuff. Like they're talking about the Oprah. Oprah's not going to run for president. Fuck no. She well, she's not. I I'd be shocked if she does. Can we? We cannot turn. We can't literally be living in an idiocracy where a reality <laughs> star runs against a TV mogul star. Move like that cannot be the United States government cannot. That is no, not. And granted, we we'll knock doors for fucking Oprah if we have to. Yep. But no, stop. <laughs> Can we stop. please not do that? Stop. I would like. Well, my... Trump's not going to run in 2020. I don't know I mean, if he'll make it to 2020. No. And if he does, they're not going to let him run again. They're just well, they going to stop him. They tried to stop him before. <laughs> that did not work out. He'll he'll literally be just speaking in tongues and drooling on himself at that point. Yeah. So. I, I can't oh my god we haven't even talked about fire and fury we <laughs> oh yeah that was this week no it was last week but we was we went to florida 
We went to Florida. So, so, sorry about last week. I know a lot was going on, and and we were not intending to abandon you, but we had to go to Florida for a for wedding. For my stepsister's and, wedding. And it was very cold, which was disappointing. Um, yeah, so we got like 10 minutes. Let's talk about Fire and Fury real quick. This is the yeah. book by Michael Wolff. Um, well, we can talk for longer just for the Netroots people. We have 10 minutes. Yeah. And gosh... Uh, I don't know where to begin. Well, with that. you got you got the audiobook. Yes. Have you been listening to it? Dana has been listening to I it. I've been listening to it in the car a little bit, but I haven't started from the well, beginning. Well, because because the pundit, especially the New York Times people who really hate this book for reasons I'll get into in a minute, uh, are saying, you know, "Let's be honest, it's just a bad book." And you guys are saying, "No, it's a pretty good book." It. I mean, there's it, some mistakes in it. Yeah. But there's, there's some mistakes in every book when you nitpick them. Yeah, and. Given the timeline of the book, um, I think it's understandable. And this guy is a tabloid writer. Uh, you mean, not technically, right? But he, the the biggest criticism that I think is, um, that's going to come about this, and it's, who cares? But post the election, this guy, Michael Wolff, in the media, as his job as a journalist, was very sympathetic to the Trump campaign and to the Trump presidency. And he criticized yeah. the media a lot yeah. for going after him. And right. he, he criticized people for, oh, you know, they're just too hard on him and everybody's out to get him. And, and he, and, he and created this facade of being well, very pe- people sympathetic aren't to the sure, president. People aren't sure if that was a facade to gain access or if he really felt that way until he got on the inside. Don't, I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. I don't care. I think he's very sly if that was. But either way, either way he they, used that he and he did. got unprecedented access. He did. They said said, you know, Trump loves the media, especially media that he thinks is going to be that kind to him. Ass, which is what Wolf did. He did. In the early days. He kissed their asses and he talked about how the media was being unfair and they loved him. And I'm going to do and this. And he just like hung out in the Oval Office and hung out with aides and hung out with staff. And, and they opened up. And they just talked to him <laughs> and they just like, they know he's a reporter. He didn't go in under false pretenses. No, he didn't do a James O'Keefe He no, no, he didn't. No one ever said to him, this is off the record, right? <laughs> no. Um, they're no. all fucking idiots that and don't know anything about government. No one's claiming any of that. But right. the, the thing is, when you when you do this thing that everyone's been talking about, right, pre-Trump, my dad used to always say, we need to get, I'd rather open a phone book and pick a name out of there and have somebody who's never been involved in politics than any <laughs> politician that currently runs. Yeah, okay, that, well, that's, that's what you did. Out really well. That's what you did. Yeah. And Trump said that too, right? I'm going to fuck politicians, Fuck them. I'm going to bring in people that don't know anything about government, that don't mm-hmm. know anything about policy, that don't know anything about politics. Yeah, and we're going to have, we're, we're have, have our own thing. And this is what happens. You have a bunch of inexperienced people who don't know how Washington works talking to a reporter, talking shit about their boss, who is the president, to a reporter day in and day out, letting him sit in the Oval Office, letting him witness the president, letting him talk to the president with unprecedented access because they don't know better. Mm-hmm. They assume he's going to be sympathetic. And then he writes this book, which is like Trump's a fucking crazy person who is totally <laughs> unfit for office. And here's and what all, all of his, his aides said. So. Everyone in his inner circle thinks that he's unfit. Everyone in his inner circle thinks and, he's an idiot. And, and here's the problem, right? Because, and the and the initial thrust, of course, was it's all lies, it's exaggerated, it's bullshit. But then Trump's own actions belie 
everything is saying makes perfect sense. Well, and yes, and... In in the very few days after yes, the book came out. Yes, and the people who are being quoted in the book are all over the news being like, I had this one guy who called him uh, like a fucking moron or something. <laughs> Which pick was? Uh, and that. he's like... He's he's on MSNBC and he's like doesn't deny saying it doesn't deny talking to Michael Wolf doesn't deny any of the stuff that Michael Wolf says he said. He's like yeah well he's called me worse and okay. um you know I I think he's fit I didn't I don't think he's unfit I just think he's learning and you know <laughs> they're all just doing gymnastics around this shit they obviously said right. no one's denying they said it a couple were. Yeah, well, of course some people are did, going to, but then, most of the people are like, fuck. I noticed they all clammed up when Michael Wolf said, I got tapes. Yeah. They all shut up. That's it. Because they all said it, and they know they fucking said and, it. And people are like, why isn't he releasing those tapes? Like, he doesn't have to yet. The books are flying off the shelves. If book sales slow down, he'll release some tapes. Yeah. They can't keep the books on the shelves. Right no, now. exactly. And Trump can't help himself. He's a fucking idiot. It's like a skit out of a movie. He's like, go buy all those books and burn them. And you're like, no, literally, it was, literally. There was a movie with Kevin Spacey, another uh, gross person yeah. called Swimming with Sharks, where he's this gross Hollywood executive. Uh, and that unflattering article to magazine comes out and he sends his intern to buy all the copies of the magazine so nobody can read it. Right. Trump's on Twitter being like this book, just just promoting the book. Don't read this book, says the president of the United States. Don't read this book, says the president of the United States. So, of course, we so they it. released it like five days early and it's like the number one best selling book ever already in it's, like a week. It's Star Wars. But the president is making, if he just, I mean, and I know, like, people have come on the news and said, like, it was very strongly suggested to the president that he not address this book at all. Please don't talk about this book. Please don't talk about this book. Please don't talk about this book. It's just going to make it worse. It's going to make it newsworthy if the president starts talking about it. Don't talk about it. And he was like, fuck you. I'm going on Twitter and I'm going to rail this guy and this book is nonsense. Can you imagine if Barack Obama got on Twitter and started screaming about Jerome Corsi's book where it accused him of being a gay Muslim alien from alien son of Frank Marshall Davis. Yeah. He was like, this book is crap. This book is crap. Don't Don't read it. it. No. Like, whoa. What is it? What is it? it? Why is he so upset? He didn't even, he's never uttered a single word right. about any of the bullshit that people did about him because why would well, you just in general vague terms he said like there's a lot of crap out there about me sometimes but but he's he not going to elevate someone's no. garbage about him because he knows it's bullshit and not true and he's a sane <laughs> adult right. who understands that when you elevate something as the president by talking about it people are going to pay more attention to it right if this book was really bullshit and it was just tabloid nonsense like the guy who wrote the book about barack obama no one would care. Right. The problem is they all know it's true. They mm-hmm. all, all of these people who said the things, and he's he's naming names. He's not like this independent aide or the anonymous no, White House aide. Names. He's like, hey, like Sally James said this, and this particular guy who's an advisor to this, like this is the conversation we had. And he's allowed to do that because nobody right. said and, he can't. And people like the New York Times and are picking parts where he maybe, I was like, he said there were six people in the meeting. There were seven. And it's, it's like, like, fucking okay, Christ. Right. Did that guy say that or not? Yeah. Did that happen? No, but you know what? That's not working. That misdirection stuff mm-hmm. and that trying to discredit the whole book because he there were misspellings or he said Wilbur Ross was uh, commerce instead of 
treasury or whatever. Right, right. Like, like and the, what they tried to do in the initial two days, especially the New York Times, which has gone off the rails, yeah. is say, well, the book is all garbage because of a couple of these errors. And people are like, uh-uh. No. No. And the thing Don't is, care. it... it the reason for that is it rings so fucking true. Of course. It that, rings so true. Point, when right? you read it, you're like, no, I believe that. And if Trump wasn't Trump and reacted like an adult, you might go, eh. eh this seems a little bit much. Right. Like if you read the Jerome Corsi stuff, that Obama is this crazy Muslim sympathizer, gay, psychotic, racist, whatever, and you watch him in action, it doesn't square. No, it doesn't square like, at all. Especially, let's say you're just a nonpartisan Joe Blow. Let's say you're Josh. Right. And Josh reads reads this, and then he sees the president, and he's like, that doesn't make any sense. No, Barack Obama doesn't seem like that guy. What? Right. right. Whereas, he might read an excerpt from this book, and, and he turns go, on the TV, and he's like, oh and yeah. And then Trump's doing it on television. <laughs> yeah. He does it out loud he's, he's on television. being a racist, crazy person. And idiot. he's And he's an, he's an unqualified, insane person who doesn't really read... And he's obsessed with himself, and then you read a book that says that, and then you look okay. back to the TV, and you're like, oh yeah, that's him. We have to wrap it up for the Netroots people, so <laughs> we're going to keep going for the full podcast, because we're just getting started here. Uh, for the Netroots people, stay active, stay tuned, stay evolved. Reverend Duo uh, on Twitter, reverendtestimony at gmail.com. See you next week. And anyway, let's talk about some of the things Trump did this week to prove... To prove that he's not the person from this book. <laughs> well, that he is. That's what he was intending. Right? Oh. He's like, I gotta look stable and I gotta look cool and I gotta like get my base to like me. Well, God, there's so much. The, the first thing was the meeting, the DACA meeting where it was Feinstein. Well, we didn't even talk about Feinstein and releasing the. Uh, oh my God. The steel memo. Yeah. God. We missed so a lot last much. week. I know. Well, let, let, let's stay on subject for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about there was a meeting, a televised meeting. This is where Trump is getting diluted. He's, he's got Yeah, he's losing dementia. it. This is the, the meeting that Charles M. Blow was talking about. Right. That where, was televised. Yes. Where, where Feinstein said, okay, so we, we'll present you with a clean DACA bill. And he said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll sign it. Mm-hmm. And Kevin McCarthy, like, almost had to physically jump yeah. in. Yeah. Like, no, wait, no, hold no, on, no, hold no, on, no, hold on. Wait, wait, no, wait. Mr. Can't. President, what you meant to say was we will, we're we're not doing, we. No, he literally the, the, had to step in yeah. and say, no. No. No, bad no, Donald. Bad, bad Donald. Bad. We're not doing that. <laughs> and he's like, no. He's like, no, no, because we, we, you know, we need a bill that gets the wall funds and does this and does the security things. And he's like, well, that's what she meant. And he's like, no, that's no. not what she meant. She meant to clean DACA bill. Oh, well, and, and he thought, well, but clean meant like good, right? And and it's like, no, no, <laughs> he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know anything. Uh, and this was on national TV. Yeah, he televised it. And and then and then this is why the media is so stupid, or pretends to be stupid, or pretends to normalize this president. They all ran and printed headlines like the president's policy on DACA seems to shift. It's like, no, no, it doesn't he doesn't shift. know he doesn't anything. Know what he's doing. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't care. And then I, I you know, I tune into NPR and that this seems to signal a shift and president signaled he'd be willing to sign. It's like, no, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. And, and the they per- can't grasp that. The last person to be in his ear is the last opinion he has, period. So right. when Feinstein's talking to him and he... You know, he's very well, he easy, he's very meant. malleable. You, you say, well, these young people and they're they're so great. And you talk about dreamers and he's like, yeah, yeah, no, that and that makes said, perfect sense to me because real, realistically, he's not a partisan. He doesn't know anything. So he's like, yeah, why would we send them back? That doesn't make any sense. Sure. I'll sign that. 
And the Republicans are like, no, we're no, 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 we can't do that because we want a wall. And he's like, yeah, we'll build a wall and we'll let the dreamers stay. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally like that, guys. It's like. And the the Beltway press just can't. They don't know how to report on him still. No, they They still don't. don't. They're still trying to report on him like he's normal president guy. Right. He's not. He's not. He's not. He's at a, all. He's, he's a demented moron. Yes. And they can't grasp that. Right. Or at least they can't report on it. They've at least like, started like, calling him racist, which I appreciate. Right. But but I don't, it's like, it's as if the NPR reporter can't go on and say, the president was really confused today and didn't seem to know what the hell was going on. Right. Like, they have to say- The like, president doesn't seem to understand what a clean bill is. I don't think he has a solid immigration policy because he- flip-flops constantly on whether the dreamers are a good thing or a bad thing. No, the guest has to come on and say that. Yeah. Like, the reporter has to say, does this signal a shift in policy? It's like, mm, no. no! Why Why, why that? is that the question? That's inaccurate. Yes. That's bad reporting. It is. Bad but reporting. But that's what they keep doing. Yeah. They can't stop themselves yeah. from normalizing the right. president. You know he doesn't have a shift. He doesn't have a policy position. No. And then his buddy Joe Arpaio. Oh, God. That was this week, too. Yeah. Is running for Senate. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. It, no, I, he it, announced his run. He announced his run, but it could just be a money-making scheme. Like, pardoned right. or not, he's got a ton of legal bills. Right. And he, and he could drop out He's not going to win. But he, but he is running for Senate. On the I Still Want to See Obama's Birth Certificate On uh, pl- platform. Fuck the Dreamers. Mm-hmm. Fuck DACA. Let's not just not let them have any legal protections. Let's round that we have their information. Because they've reported to us under Obama's program. We know exactly where they are. Let's round them up and deport them. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's he's in this like three-way primary with two other crazy people mm. um, that are good. all trying to out-Trump each other. Oh. So that's going to be fun to watch. Good. Okay. Yeah. We have I a Democrat th- in that race? I think that's in Arizona. It uh, is in Arizona. Yeah, there is a Democrat. Is it? We care? I, I don't know enough about it yet. Okay, me either. <laughs> I, I think Arpaio would have a good chance of losing that. Yeah. But I don't know. And, I, and I'm and i not convinced Arpaio is actually going to run. I think it could be a money-making scam. It could be. Yeah. I don't know. But that's, that's the... Arpaio's really old. That's the other... I mean, that's the, like, out-Trump-Trump. Trump. Yeah. We have their information. Why not just run them up and deport them? They're illegals. Well, they're... You know, her mom brought her here when she was two. So? Yeah. Fuck her. Send her back to El Salvador. That's the other thing, the Salvadorans. Mm-hmm. There's too much. There is too much. But let's get back to what else Trump did this week to perfectly highlight why... Why this is. book is obviously accurate. I think it was yesterday. Um, he was up uh, watching Fox and Friends. Mm. And there was a bill to um, sort of reauthorize or update uh, FISA for... Yeah! Warrantless surveillance for foreign entities. Correct. And the right, especially the Fox News sphere, is very much convinced that that's what Obama was in cahoots with the FBI to to start the whole Russia collusion investigation on. The, right. It, and the dossier. And the dossier. So Fox and Friends was running a thing in the morning that, okay, well, Trump shouldn't reauthorize this thing because that's what they used to, to get him with this Russia stuff. But then the the hawkish Lindsey Grahams of the world are like, we want FISA. We want this. Well, this Paul, is, Paul, this Ryan, is a- Paul Ryan had literally had to call him on the phone and be like, actually, this is what we use to like get ISIS and bad guys. So I shut up. I am not 
for FISA um, for a, a load of reasons, including the fact that it absolutely infringes upon the privacy of American citizens. Um, yeah, there, there's there's a lot to debate in that, but the point was but, so, but, so he his, went against his own party. Right, no, his own policy. The <laughs> Trump administration is for the reauthorization of the FISA Act. <laughs> they were. No, <laughs> they yes, are. that is their formal statement. We are for this, pass it, I'll sign it. Good. Yeah. House passes it, and Trump, I guess, watched a little no, Fox no, and Friends. No, he literally was watching Fox and Friends. And starts tweeting about how he's very against this, and this was the thing that they used to create the fake news dossier. Yes, yes. And I, this is bullshit. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. And so Paul- is he gonna is he gonna sign it and then veto it? <laughs> right. I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. So then Paul Ryan literally calls him, and they have like a half hour conversation where Paul Ryan has to remind him like what it is. No, you want this. It's good. It yeah. gives you more power, and yeah. it gives us all this and then, ability. And then he tweets again, like he. I don't think he sent the second tweet, by the way, because it was too I'd coherent. Uh-huh. But the second tweet said, "In spite of all that, it's a good thing, and we need it, and I'm going to sign it." And you're just like, "Oh my god! Oh my god!" He's unraveling before our very eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't know anything. I can't say that enough times without really. And he, he just, doesn't he know anything. He watches TV. And he tweets. He's he's your he's your uncle. Yeah. He watches Fox. He's your News drunk racist uncle, except and, he doesn't and, drink. And then he tweets what he sees on Fox News, and that's it. And that's the president. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Right. Yes. So nobody knows anything. And this is foreign policy. This yeah. is North Korea. Yeah. This is everything. Yeah. I mean, yes. That's the world we're in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So by fire and fury, if nothing else, just piss off the president. I really just want this book to be like the best-selling book of all time. Well, what since you've been listening to the book and I haven't yet, uh, what what interesting tidbits do you have to share so far? All for right, those who haven't gotten to it because I, I, I haven't yet. I've only listened to a little chunk of it, but I think one something that's really interesting came up, which was Hope Hicks. How does she do it herself? What? <laughs> that's the running joke. Is that there were a million puff pieces when it was announced that she was whatever? That how does she do all this this stuff herself? Because she's so young and pretty and white. Right. And th- even Michael Wolf is gross about her miniskirts. I'm like, don't fucking don't. Don't. But so there was a lot of uh, misgivings about her in the party and a lot of uh, even in the media. She had, had no experience and she was a spokesmodel. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she seemed pretty incompetent. And he kept saving her and protecting her. And where's hope? Where's hope? Where's hope? And this is the interesting thing. Why? Why her? And it's not because she's young or pretty. Her job was essentially to collect the news and give yes. it to the president in the most positive yes. and pleasant and bubbly way possible. Well, we've known about that for a while. To the point where when she delivered the news that Jeff Sessions um, had actually met with Russians, lead, which all of the, the that story, which led to his recusal, which mm-hmm. led to firing Comey, which led to Mueller, which led to his downfall, ultimately. She presented it in such a way that he was excited. He he heard this news and he was like, well, I don't think that's a problem. He said he didn't meet with Russians. He didn't meet with Russians. She's like, well, he did meet with Russians. The person's like, yeah, but not in the campaign, just because that was his job. And she's like, right, but he, under testimony... He said he did Answered a question that wasn't actually the question and made a statement that was wrong. And people are 
not happy about it. And he was like, no, 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 this is not a thing. This is, in fact, it's even good because he, he said, you know, he said he was a surrogate and he was, and he was on our team and he said that. And she's like, no, no, but so. So Hope Hicks, I hear you. who's a spokesmodel and she's like 25 or whatever, gets it more than the president. She's, and her job is to spin the press to make him happy. Yeah. That's her actual job. At least she understands the very basics of like potential perjury. But and... she's trying to be like positive <laughs> and bubbly. Yeah. And also. But, but my point is, um, at least she understands yeah. the very, very, very basics. Oh, no. She's government. way smarter than he is. Yeah. Way fucking smarter than he is. And she's trying to be like, well, I just think it could potentially be a problem, Mr. President. <laughs> I really, really think that this is not going to be good. And he was like, no, no, this is this is great hope. This is great. But I guess he would also just, like, call for her. Where's Hope? Where is she? Like, in totally inappropriate times when, why would you need her right now, sir? Uh, and he, where's Hope? And then she'd come in and she'd give him yeah. some good news and then he'd be in a better mood and then she'd leave. And where's Hope? Like, whenever he needed a pick-me-up, he'd call for Hope Hicks and she'd bring him some cute news story about how great he is. How does she do it herself? Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. And just his total inability to understand anything outside of himself. So that story is a perfect example of like Jeff Sessions perjured himself about Russia. That should be very upsetting for Trump considering what yeah, happened. Like, hey, this could be a big problem, right? No. No, it's fine. It's the same thing with firing Comey. Fuck him. It'll be fine. He With the Hillary thing and all the things, just fire him. I, I, well, I don't like him. That, he doesn't understand the gravity of anything. Well, that's the part of the book I want to get to because it's been reported that the Comey firing was really pushed on him by Kushner and that like Bannon and the other people were against it. I, I, I don't know. I think that's opposite day, but I haven't finished the book, yeah, so I don't knows? know. I haven't who gotten knows? to that part. But yeah. um, everybody should read or listen to it because it's it's crazy and true. And it rings... So very true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so did you also want to, I mean, there's, there's the other stuff that happened this week. We haven't talked about the Diane Feinstein releasing, uh, God, I forget his name now. Glenn, what is his name? Yeah. We're going to have to get to that later because I, it's too much. It's too much. I, it's, it's important. It's important. Uh, but the Russia stuff, there's a lot going on there that we'll have to just, <laughs> report on later <laughs> and I heard some vague Twitter rumblings that he's tweeting again this morning so oh god of course he is we'll have to we'll have to catch up with that yeah things are moving fast it's sort of unraveling and before well before Feinstein released her uh, released the memo you had this new well, movement well it was testimony testimony you mm-hmm. had this new movement by Grassley and Graham to try to bring charges against Christopher Steele for something. Yeah. And that's kind of gone by the wayside, I think, now that, yeah. you know, I, I can't I can't imagine they're still going to push that. Yeah, the, whole, shot, the whole dossier thing's going to blow up in the next couple weeks is my, uh, my prediction. And then Michael Cohen suing the Daily Beast for... For, remember? For no. slander. For what? Because he's named, he's all over it. Oh, in the dossier? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah I don't know. We, we talked about that briefly. 
And then we're yeah. like, uh, what about Discovery? And that's where, like, right, the right. lawsuit is never actually, he's going to pull out before yeah, he gets right. to that. Yeah. No, yeah, let's let's not do vagaries about this because it's a whole thing. Yeah. We'll, it, we'll get thing. more, we'll get more in all the names of the people and the dates and the things. Yep. But. We got sidetracked talking about sports because Rachel's such a huge <laughs> sports fan. She can't help herself. Football all the time. Sports, oh, football, sports go sports. I just like the Canes. Go okay. Canes. All right. So uh, I guess that'll do it. Yeah, uh, we'll be back. We'll with, regroup and yeah, maybe even do an interim podcast because there's we just might. so much to catch up yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so stay active, stay tuned, stay involved. We already told you all the contact info. You know what to do. Um, go out and get Fire and Fury. Yeah. And tweet us your favorite parts. Yeah. Favorite anecdotes. Yeah. Do a little little tweet. Storms. I mean, p- people are just digging into it yeah. now. There was another bit before we we go away because uh, the. The thing about the hundred thirty thousand dollar payoff, where this little throwaway line that is like, "Oh yeah, Bannon said that they paid off more than a hundred women during the campaign, <laughs> probably all with campaign funds." <laughs> hey, Ken Starr. Hey, you're you're out of work at Baylor. You need something to do? <laughs> we got something Jesus. for you. Why don't you dust off your old uh, law book? And <laughs> I know it's the wrong team, but you know you're good at this stuff. God. Salacious. Yeah. Could even be cigars involved and stained dresses. Who knows? Who knows? Worse. Yeah. Let's go. Stained with pee this time. <laughs> Stay <laughs> stained. <laughs> All right. Let's go All right. Here. See you next week. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>